Congress, outrageous attacks and hostage-taking in Israel, but it leave the world feeling even more politically charged, even more tenuous than usual. Quite a few people have paid a heavy price just for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jesus knows the price you pay when you find yourself in the middle of these kinds of politics. You may remember that at the beginning of the 21st chapter of Matthew, which is the chapter for our gospel today, Jesus rides into Jerusalem to the cheers of the adoring crowds. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? Which is pretty heady stuff for a small town boy from the sticks. Jesus appears to be quite popular on the political scene. Right? We've got crowds. Matthew tells us that when he entered the city, the whole uh, the whole city was in turmoil. So you'd think that Jesus would have been in a better mood because what does he do in our passage, or excuse me, before uh, we get to our passage, right after this whole entry into Jerusalem to the cheering throngs, well... Just after he gets out of that parade, finishes signing autographs and, 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 and kissing the babies, requisite babies, Matthew says that he enters the temple and he drives out all who were selling and buying in the temple, overturns the money changers' tables. You remember this? Well, I mean, wh why does he do that? Where does that come from? Well, it looks like Jesus has revolution on his mind since. The temple at this point was operating as a kind of religious front for the Roman procurator, Pilate. And so turning over the money changers' tables was a kind of symbolic slap in the face to the temple elite, the political system that allowed them to thrive. So he does all that, and if raining on the temple's bingo night isn't enough, the first thing the next morning being hungry, Jesus curses a fig tree. I mean, he's just going to go get something, a little something to tide him over until breakfast, right? But he, he's got a problem. He's, he's found the Charlie Brown fig tree, right? It's all spindly and fruitless. And in what looks like a fit of pique, Jesus curses the tree. Just confounding the disciples. I mean, what's his problem anyway? I mean, we thought things were going pretty well. If yesterday's any indication, we're trending toward the uh, upward in the key battleground states, Jesus. You ought to be happy. What are you, what are you, what are you so upset about? And so Jesus goes to the temple a second time. And now you can imagine uh, the disciples maybe sort of shooting each other anxious looks. Thinking, we just did this. And if memory serves, you know, we didn't make any friends the last time we were in here. And they're right. A bit annoyed by yesterday's little outburst, the temple leaders ask Jesus when he shows back up, by what authority are you doing these things? And, and, and who gave you this authority? And he refuses to tell them. But he does agree to tell them a parable, a couple parables actually. And our passage for this morning is the second of these parables. Having witnessed Jesus' mood, we're not all, surprised, all that surprised at these things may be characterized under the 
heading parables of judgment. But, I mean, so why the sudden mood change from triumph on Sunday to, 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 to judgment on, on Monday? Well, I suspect that it has something to do with Jesus' own political instincts. See, while everybody in his entourage sees only the palm branches and the, and the victory parades, Jesus knows by their reaction that they've, they've under, misunderstood what his ministry is about. I mean, they see in their sort of star-crossed eyes inaugural galas and, uh, and, and all the bunting and, and, and everything, but all Jesus sees is controversy and plummeting polling data, right? Why? Well, because Jesus seems to be the only one aware that he's not running an election campaign. He's doing something different, more radical. He's, he knows his job is just telling the truth. And we all know how hard it is to get anywhere in politics if you happen to be overly attached to the truth. I mean, he, he's got a tough job in front of him. And he seems to be the only one who realizes that. He alone seems aware of how much his messiahship will ultimately cost him. Which brings us to our gospel for today. Jesus tells a story about a man who planted a vineyard. Now, it's not just any vineyard, right? The owner puts a fence around it, contracted with ADT to monitor against, uh, you know, letting in the, uh, the questionable folks. Put in a new high-tech wine press, guard at the front entrance with motion detectors and retinal scanners. But this owner's an entrepreneur. He's not in it to make wine. He's going to lease the place, which he does to some folks whose credit scores come back in the high 700s. And then the owner takes a little vacation to, 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 to Florence just to visit the museums. All right, now so far we've got the caretakers and an owner. We get the sense that the owner represents God. I mean, we heard the Isaiah passage, right, about Israel being the vineyard of God. But who are these caretakers? I mean, who are they supposed to be? Well, the clue is found in the opening words of the passage, listen to another parable. This means, of course, that Jesus is adding on to a parable that he's just told, which is the parable from last week, the parable about the two brothers who've asked their father to tend to another vineyard. One says he'll go but doesn't, and the other says he won't, but he eventually does go to work in the vineyard. And Jesus takes aim in the parable of the two brothers at these, at these temple elites, the guys who are still ticked at him for the whole money changer table fiasco. After telling the first parable, Jesus says, Okay, now, listen to another parable. Here's another one. So we know that our parable this morning, another parable about a vineyard, is also aimed at the temple power brokers. So here's what happens. After the harvest comes in, the owner sends the accountants to pick up the rent. And the accountants, they, they, they get thumped by the people given the responsibility of tending to the vineyard. Now, initially, it's kind of hard to get worked up over the vineyard owner's loss, right? I mean, after all, he probably had it coming. A little populist ire comes pretty easily under the circumstances. But the owner sends more accountants to collect the rent. And they meet with the same inhospitality. So what's the, what's the owner going to do? 
I mean, we're, we're familiar with how this story is supposed to go, how it usually goes in the movies, right? This is where the owner's supposed to ride in with the sheriff and a big fat eviction notice. I mean, you can't just let people avoid paying rent, right? You can't just let people renegotiate their mortgages. People have to start taking personal responsibility. Otherwise, you know, everybody's going to start stiffing the landlord. I mean, we know the narrative arc. We've seen it before. You've got to come down hard on these deadbeats. Or otherwise, the whole economic system's going to implode. Send in the leg breakers. But you see, here's where Jesus zigs when we think he should have zagged, right? Instead of sending in the muscle, what does Jesus say? The owner sends in his son. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like, like a really well-thought-out move, does it? I mean, it... It does, and this is time of the year for it, too. It sounds like virtually every horror movie where the power goes out and, and the babysitter says, I wonder what happened. I guess I should go down in the cellar where all the power tools and cobwebs are. I mean, you can hear the collective groan from the audience, no, don't do it. But the landowner sends his son in anyway. And guess what happens? The caretakers who've been given the responsibility of tending the vineyard have turned into Bonnie and Clyde all of a sudden. Vineyard is now the Bates Motel, and it's not Janet Lee in the shower, but Junior who gets offed. Now, who saw that coming? Right? But the owner's logic doesn't make any sense. I mean, why? Why would you send the boy? Why send him? I mean, we've seen how the caretakers take care. We know what they're like. I mean, how can the owner not see this? With all that violent history, why, why doesn't the owner do what everybody knows he should do and just send in the muscle? I mean, if I were in charge, they're not getting away with it, I'll tell you that. I'd make them pay. At least that's what I say in my head. It's human nature, right? You gotta protect what's yours or somebody's gonna take it from you. Make a statement. Let them know you're not somebody to be messed with. In politics, it, it, it seems to be the fashion that we like finding candidates who are like us. We vote for people we like to have a beer with. As long as a candidate talks like us and gets mad at the same kind of things that make us angry, then we figure, well, they'll make excellent candidates for governing. But in this story, the owner's not like me. And it's not just that the owner's powerful. What makes the owner so different is that he refuses to use that power violently, vindictively. This owner sends servants into the vineyard when good sense suggests that probably should send in the cavalry. It's just so hard to wrap your head around. Oscar Romero became Archbishop of San Salvador in 1977. 
at the onset of a turbulent period in El Salvador's history, a civil war brewing between the right-wing military government and leftist guerrilla groups, as poverty, assassinations, and government repression grew, Bishop Romero emerged as a champion of the poor and the oppressed. And from the pulpit, he, he would speak out against this uh, escalating violence, appealing to soldiers to refuse any longer to kill innocent civilians. As the political unrest intensified in 1980, Bishop Romero wrote to President Carter pleading for the U.S. to stop sending military aid to the Salvadoran regime. This bold political move angered the government and the death squads in his own country. And on March 24, 1980, while celebrating evening mass, Archbishop Oscar Romero was assassinated by a sniper in the rear of the cathedral. His murder sent shockwaves through El Salvador and through the world. The regime banned national press from covering his funeral, at which there were 250,000 mourners. Archbishop Oscar Romero was one of the servants who went to the vineyard. He lived in El Salvador, tried to get the church to act like followers of Jesus in the face of corrupt leaders. His life was continually threatened, but he refused to leave the country. He said, my place is with my people. The caretakers of the vineyard caught up with him, though. One night, as he was saying mass, they walked through the church doors and they shot him as he stood over the altar, preparing to break the bread of life. Oscar Romero died in the vineyard. And today, we come to worship, remembering the name of one more murdered servant. This time, of course, we remember the son. Jesus died in the vineyard. Earlier, he said, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. And violence, sadly, has always been a part of the vineyard, hasn't it? The owner looks weak and powerless. The caretakers are in it for themselves. The messengers are beaten, murdered. The parable ends with the fate of the vineyard unresolved. The owner's still alive, yes, but so are the violent caretakers. I mean, how's the story going to end? See, Jesus heads into the vineyard to cheers of Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, but he can read the political tea leaves. He's got a pretty good idea where the story is actually headed. So it should be no great surprise to learn that Jesus is a little testy. Even after stepping over so many palm branches, he knows which way the political wind is blowing, but he walks into the vineyard anyway. The parable ends the fate of the vineyard is as yet unresolved, but we know that, don't we? We've seen too much injustice 2,000 years in to believe that the vineyard has changed all that much. 
killings continue. Servants are still fed, uh, sent into the vineyard, and these servants still cry out against the violent and the unjust caretakers. There are still servants around who proclaim that God isn't okay with the ways that people in power continue to look out for their own interests. While those who are still trying to figure out what's going to be for supper tonight deal with the lives that they have. Because here's the thing. People are still being neglected in the vineyard at the hands of those in charge. Those who've been entrusted to protect the vulnerable and the powerless, to care for the widow and the orphan, to welcome the stranger, to bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted, and to make certain that no one takes advantage of or harms those who are constantly the targets of the wicked. Children, the elderly, the poor, the sick, and those on the margins. Incidentally, using them as hostages and human shields is an atrocity that makes God weep. According to the story, the owner of the vineyard is unwilling to let it go. Unwilling to ignore the distress of ordinary people. We know that great suffering has always been involved, and with the final act of killing the son, we know how high is the cost of doing business in this vineyard. But that's not all we know. We know even more than the high cost of doing business in the vineyard. We know something else. We know that the owner loves it too much to let it go. The loving tending of the vineyard shows the contours of the realm that God wants for all of us. A realm where there's enough for everybody. Where those in charge with caretaking actually take care. And where those who've sought justice for so long and often with so little success will finally know the joy of God's loving abundance. See, producing the fruits of the realm isn't about making sure that I get what's mine, what's coming to me. It's about making sure that everyone gets precisely what God thinks they have coming. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.